Thanks for joining us for this message from Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Shades Valley and its ministries, you can visit us at shadesvalley.org. Today's scripture is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1-11. through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against a brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. So, Father, in the name of of your Son, who washed us, sanctified us, justified us, and by the power of your Spirit, who applies all of these things to us, we ask that you open our eyes to see the beautiful truth and glories that are here in your Word, and open our hearts to receive, and then empower us to live in light of the good truth of the Gospel. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as the Apostle Paul continues to call the Christians in Corinth to quit imitating their culture. They've been imitating their culture in an effort to be perceived as wise by their culture. That's what we've seen over and over and over again. And so he calls them to quit doing that. Instead, they are to be a part of God's set-apart people, saints. That's what saints means, those that are set apart. And they're to be that even if that makes them look like fools to their culture. And last week in chapter 5, we, we saw Paul begin to to take that call and to apply it to very specific issues that the Corinthians are facing. And that's what he continues to do right here in chapter 6. And the way, the way that he applies this call in chapter 6, it reminds me of the Lion King. I am a 90s child, and Holly and I, we, we love showing our kids movies that we enjoyed when we were their age. And yes, the Lion King came out 30 years ago. 
when I was 10? All right, yeah, I know, it hurts all of our feelings, right, Sharon? Anyway, that's beside the point. 1 Corinthians 6 reminds me of my favorite scene, and that's when Simba sees this vision of his father. I'm not going to explain the whole plot to you, and I'm not going to care about spoilers. You've had 30 years, but that's beside the point. Basically, all you need to know is that because of his lying, murderous uncle, Simba has run away from home as a cub, and he has grown up with everyone presuming that he is dead. But he's actually alive, living in exile, trying to forget the fact that he was born to be king of the pride lands. And it's in that context that he has this vision of his father that uh, appears to him. And his father is telling Simba that he's forgotten his identity. He's forgotten who he is. And the irreplaceable James Earl Jones, who voices Simba's father, Mufasa, says, you are my son and the one true king. And the primary thing that he continues to tell his son over and over again as this vision fades is remember who you are. That summarizes the way that Paul applies this call right here for the Corinthians to be saints, especially right here in chapter six. He's basically saying, Corinth, you've forgotten who you are. Like you've forgotten who you were saved to be. You've forgotten that you're sons and daughters of the most high king, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you are living like the lost when you have been found. You, you are living like you belong to the kingdom of this world when you belong to the kingdom of Christ. Corinth, remember who you are. That's the essence of what Paul says in verses 1 to 11. And I think he basically says it through two questions and a call. That's, that's my best way of trying to sum up what Paul's saying right here. Through, through two questions and a call. The questions are, do you know who you are? Do others know who you are? And the call, be who you are. Let's take those one at a time. Number one, do you know who you are? think that summarize what, summarizes what Paul is saying in verses 1 through 4. Read with me. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law or court? Does he dare go to court before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, before we dive too deep into this, uh, there are two words that Paul uses right here that are vital for us to understand the context of everything that he's talking about. The two words are grievance and unrighteous. So first, grievance. When one of you has a grievance against another. In verse 2, he's going to call these grievances trivial cases. In, in other words, when you study the court system in Corinth, it becomes clear that what Paul is not talking about right here in 1 Corinthians 6 is he's not talking about serious criminal cases. Criminal cases, criminal law has to do with crimes against the state that often involve a penalty of prison or even worse. Paul's not talking about serious criminal cases like that at all. He's talking about civil cases, and not just all civil cases, trivial ones. Civil cases arise when there's an issue between two parties, can even be between two persons. And they, to resolve it, go to the courts and somebody sues somebody. Like as a result of a civil case, nobody's going to jail, but somebody may have to pay up. So what, I tell you all that, 
Because what we need to see is that Paul, right here, is not saying Christians should never use the court system and just take care of everything in-house. Don't go to the unrighteous courts, bring it before the church. Always, that's a misapplication that will lead to some horrendous situations. It has. There are churches that have taken, for instance, criminal cases of abuse, covered them up in order to keep them in-house. That's wrong and devastatingly damaging. This is, this is why last year we partnered with an organization called Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment. And they helped us develop a child protection policy so that we know how to properly involve the authority should anything like that ever take place. Paul is not, it's important to know, Paul is not saying that Christians will never end up in court. He's not even saying that Christians will never end up in court regarding a civil case. He specifies trivial civil cases. You got to understand, in Corinth, suing people via a civil case had become a common means, not for justice, but for retaliation. Like, Corinthian citizens, they would sue one another over the most trivial of things, basically anything they found insulting. Or they didn't actually even have to be wrong. They could just be jealous of somebody else, maybe somebody else that had the same position or, or, or occupation as they did. And they wanted to be seen as socially superior, so they'd trump up charges and sue them to publicly shame them and prove themselves socially superior. That impulse to shame an opponent to, for your own social standing and glory, is that not an impulse that Paul has shown us exists among the Corinthian Christians themselves? Like since the beginning, have we not seen them competing with one another for standing by arguing over who follows the better teacher? That was a cultural practice in the city of Corinth. You attach yourself to some teacher to try and elevate your status. And one of the ways you elevated your status was by insulting other teachers and their students. The Corinthians are doing this. It's causing all sorts of jealousy and strife. Paul said that explicitly back in chapter 3 and verse 3. You can look at it. He says your one-upmanship over teachers is causing jealousy and strife among you as you act like the rest of your culture. And now we see in chapter 6, that just like the rest of their culture, when they have this jealousy, this strife, these insults, they're doing what their culture does. They're dragging one another into court over these trivial things. Suing each other to, to further prove their superior social standing. These, these are the kinds of grievances that Paul says they should be handling in the church. In other words, you should be holding one another accountable for boasting, for being arrogant, prideful. You should hold one another accountable for insulting and degrading and defaming each other. You should hold one another accountable for destroying unity amongst each other. Paul basically is looking at Corinth and saying the same thing we've seen him say many times before. This kind of self-promotion has no place amongst you. This kind of self-promotion, that's what the unrighteous in your city embrace. And that's the second word that's vital 
for us to understand the context of what Paul's talking about. Second, unrighteous. Look at verse one again. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Adekoi, unrighteous. It literally means unjust, crooked, wrongdoer. That's precisely what the judges and juries in Roman colonies like Corinth were known for, being crooked, unjust. To, to even be a judge, magistrate, or on a jury uh, in this culture, you had to be of the socially elite. You had to be of high social standing. And so naturally, the judges and juries favored their socially elite friends. But even if, even if you weren't friends with the judge or jury, you could still get your way simply by paying to play. They could be bought. Paul knew that. Just read Acts 24, verse 26. The Roman governor Felix holds Paul in jail for two years in hopes that Paul will bribe him. Juvenal, uh, a, a Roman poet, uh, this is the way he described the court system. He said, a man's word is believed in exact proportion to the amount of cash he keeps in his strong box. In other words, what I'm saying is everybody knew you don't go to the courts in Corinth to humbly seek justice. You go to the courts specifically for unjust retaliation and revenge. To get back at anyone who's insulted you or simply to destroy somebody who annoys you. You could use the court to shame them and elevate your own status. Paul's pointing out that's precisely why the Corinthian Christians are dragging each other into court. To shame their brothers and sisters seek their own self-promotion. And to all of that, he basically says, are you for real? The first word in Greek, the first word of verse one is the word dare. Like in English, it shows up in the middle of the verse. Do you see it? Does he dare to go to court before the unrighteous? That's the first word out of Paul's mouth. He's like, like for real, for real, y'all are daring to do, you're daring to do the exact same thing as your culture. You're acting unrighteous, adikoi, but you're saints, hagioi. Paul's going to play with those words in this passage. Play with them in a way to see, to show Corinth what they are supposed to be, what they've been saved to be, but how they're acting. You are acting like the unrighteous, but you're supposed to be saints. Do you know that, Corinth? Do you know who you are? That's what Paul's asking. And I think that gets even clearer in verse 2. Or do you not know? Do you not know who you are, Corinth? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try Trivial cases, Paul's arguing from the greater to the, the lesser. It's, it's like if I said, Brad and John Mark can both play drums, so surely they can clap on beat. Like if you can do 
the harder thing, the greater thing, surely you can do the, the lesser thing. That's Paul's point. As he tells the Corinthians, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Not right now. We know from chapter 5, he's already told us, that's, that's not our job right now. Paul's looking into the future. When Christ comes again, Revelation 3 and verse 21 says that we will sit with Christ on his throne. I don't think that's literal. That's a really big throne. It's an image. It's an image that means we will reign with him. And I'll be honest, Shades, I don't know all the particulars of what that means or what it looks like. But Paul is saying if that's our destiny, to judge or to govern is another way to translate that word, to rule, to reign. If our destiny is to judge or govern with Christ over all things in the next life, then can't we do the lesser thing of judging, governing the trivial matters of this life? No, that's what he means because that's explicitly what he says in verse 3 through another argument from the greater to the lesser. Look at it. Do you not know that you are to judge angels? How much more than the matters pertaining to this life? Again, I don't know specifically what judging angels means. Like, perhaps that sharing in Christ's judgment of Satan and his fallen angels. But whatever he means specifically, Paul's general point is clear because of how he contrasts judging angels with matters pertaining to this life. In other words, he's saying, if you are going to judge matters pertaining to the next life, the greater thing, if that's your destiny, then surely you can do the lesser thing of judging, governing the smaller matters of this life. Paul's saying, Corinth, shades, do you know who you are? Saints destined to reign with Christ your king. So why? Why would you seek the judgment of those who have no standing in Christ's kingdom? If you're a part of the greater kingdom, why would you go to the lesser? Verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Exutheneo. A lot of Greek this morning, people. Exutheneo means despised or considered foolish. It's foolish. It has no standing. I point that out because this isn't the first time that Paul's used this word. He used it back in chapter 1 and verse 28. There he used it to describe the way the world looks at Christians. God chose what is low and despised in the world. In other words, pick up what Paul is saying right here. He's, he's saying, hey, you remember how back in chapter 1, how I said the world looks at us like we're foolish? And they're so wise. But God actually reveals that the wisdom of the world, said in the context of his kingdom, it has no standing. It's what is truly foolish. So why? Why, Corinth? Why would you drag each other into a court before those who have no standing in God's kingdom, unless, 
unless it is their kingdom that you actually want to have standing in. That's the crux, Shades. That's what Paul is going after. He's he's wanting the Corinthians to see the reality that they are living as a part of their city's kingdom. That's what they want notoriety and standing in. That's what they care about. like, Like Simba, they've forgotten who they are. And so in verses one through four, Paul asks Corinth, Shades, do you know? Do you know who you are? He's, he's asking us to ponder how our life answers that question. Like, do we live as citizens of the kingdom of the world or as citizens of the kingdom of Christ? And Shades, if we're laying our lives alongside of 1 Corinthians 6, then we may be tempted to say, well, clearly I don't live as a part of the kingdom of the world like the Corinthians did. I've never taken another Christian to court. Congratulations. Shades, that is not the point. The point is do I respond to being wronged in the same way as the world? That's what the Corinthians are doing. Their version just looks like the courts and civil cases and suing. Ours may look different, but do we do the same thing? When I'm wronged by a brother or sister in Christ, do I respond in the way that the world does, or does my response look like Christ? It's another way of asking, do I overcome evil with evil? Do I respond with revenge and and retaliation that leads to deeper insults and and deeper division? Or even if I haven't been wronged, maybe there's just another brother or sister that I am jealous of for whatever reason. Do I treat them in in the same way the world reacts when it feels jealousy? Do I tear others down in people's eyes in order to try and elevate myself and my, my own pride. That's what Corinth is doing. That's what they're doing because for the Corinthians, their identity, their worth, their value, their social standing, their identity and status, it had to be achieved. So they were in constant competition with each other. But Shades, our identity and status, it doesn't have to be achieved. It's something that's received. Do you know that you're saints? That's a received identity. Because if you do know that you are saints, that sets you free from this need to achieve an identity. Even when you are wronged or insulted, my identity in Christ is not at risk. Like the social standing of the Corinthians who had to compete in order to keep their place. You insult me, I'm lowered in everybody else's else's eyes. I got to compete to keep my, my place, my identity, my worth, my value. But when my identity is secure in Christ, I am free to reject that worldly wisdom of overcoming evil with evil. And instead, I can seek counsel when I'm wronged. I can seek counsel from wise saints on how I might overcome evil with good. I'm set free to seek redemption instead of revenge, reconciliation instead of retaliation. Shades, revenge, retaliation, they may feel good, in the moment. They may seem wise in the moment, but they are a part of the wisdom of this world that will not last. The 
The kingdom that is coming is not a kingdom of revenge and retaliation. It is a kingdom of redemption and reconciliation. That's the kingdom to which you belong. Paul says, do you not know that? Do you know who you are? That question is not enough to pierce our hearts. Paul pushes the dagger of conviction deeper through question number two. Do others know who you are? Do others know who you are? I think that summarizes what Paul says in verses five through eight. Read with me. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers or sisters? You don't have anyone wise enough, Corinth, to walk you through the process of Matthew 18? You remember us talking about that last week? Last week as we talked about church discipline. There's a great irony between what we covered last week and this week. Last week in chapter 5, we saw the Corinthians avoiding holding one another accountable, and now we see the wrong ways they seek to hold one another accountable. They don't want to hold one another accountable within the church, but they're fine to seek it outside the church. It's very ironic. Last week, we talked about a process laid out by Christ in Matthew 18 of when there's a grievance between saints of going to them privately to seek reconciliation. If that doesn't work, taking one or two brothers with you. And if that doesn't work, then taking it to the church. We talked about this process, and Paul's like, is is there nobody wise enough to, to do this Matthew 18 thing? Which he means to say this, is there nobody wise enough? He means that ironically. Because one of the main things we've seen the Corinthians brag about is being wise. Paul has pointed out many times how the Corinthian Christians boasted about their wisdom. And that's because they care deeply about what their society thinks of them. And they lived in an honor and shame culture. Honor is what they sought. But Paul points out the irony of their boasting. They claim to be wise, but the moment wisdom is needed, they turn to others. Thus, their boasting doesn't lead to the honor that they seek. It leads to their shame. Everybody can see they're not wise like they claim. That shame only grows in verse 6. Brother goes to law or to court against brother. And that before unbelievers, this this was shameful in Greco-Roman culture. Romans thought that family members suing one another was incredibly shameful. If they saw that happening, they'd be appalled. And, And Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to see that's precisely what they're doing, for they are family brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are wronging each other before the watching world. The world sees it as shameful, hypocritical, and ultimately concludes that Christians are worse than the world, or at least they're the same, which is why verse 7 is true. Look at verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You get what Paul's saying? Like, even if you go to court and you win, 
you've already lost. I don't care what happens in the suit. It's already a defeat because it has made you look the exact same as the world. Do others even know who you are? You don't look like a saint. You look the same as the world with with the same goal to win and to elevate your status. But Paul calls the Corinthians to truly win by losing. Look at verse seven again, but let's read all of it. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, why not rather lose in society's eyes? So what if you're knocked down a couple of bumps on the totem pole of the worldly kingdom scale? The kingdom's of no account. Why not rather lose in their eyes so that you might display the love of Christ toward your brother? Paul is saying, Corinth, Shades, we've got to care more about our brothers and sisters in Christ than we do about our standing in this life. Like if you're wronged or defrauded and the only way to win is by playing the same game, Paul says, then lose. Lose in society's eyes so that you might truly win by showing the world Christ. Show them who you are. Show them whose you are. Corinth, shades, do others know who you are? For Corinth, we find the answer in verse 8. But you yourselves wrong. Idikeo. It's the verbal form of the word unrighteous. It's Paul playing with these words, saying you're supposed to be saints. But this is what you look like. You yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Do others know who you are? Paul's saying, for you, Corinth, the answer is no. Others don't know that you're saints because you don't look set apart. You look the same as everybody else. You don't look like saints, hagioi. You look like the unrighteous, adikoi. So, in verses 9 through 11, Paul is done with questions. And he issues the call. Be who you are. That's number three. He's asked, do you know who you are? Do others know who you are? And now he calls. Be who you are. Read with me. Verse nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteous adekoi, those that you're living like, Corinth, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What does Paul mean right here? Is he trying to give us a list of these are the people who are lost? As long as you haven't done these things, you're okay. And if you've done these things, tough luck. No, 
This is known as a vice list in Scripture. Paul lists several, and every time he does, it has specific applications to the people that he's talking to. In other words, Paul's list right here is of lifestyles that characterize the social, socially elite in Corinth. The, in other words, the people that the Corinthian Christians idolize, the people they want to be like, their lives are characterized by primarily two things, sexual immorality and greed. Take those one at a time. First, sexual immorality. Paul starts off this list with a very broad term, pornos, which refers to all sex outside of the union between a husband and a wife. And Paul gives a few specific examples of what he means. He's not being exhaustive. He's just giving examples that the Corinthians would have seen among their socially elite. And he starts with idolatry, which is not as odd as you think. I thought we were talking about sexual immorality, Jonathan. Why does he start with idolatry? Throughout Scripture, idolatry is compared to adultery because they are both unfaithfulness in the extreme. In fact, the very purpose of marriage is to be a small picture of God's relationship with his people. So adultery is a small picture of idolatry. And adultery is where Paul goes next. Idolatry, adultery, and then he also lists men who practice homosexuality. Again, these are examples of sexual immorality that was common among the Corinthian elites. And here's the deal. I know, I know that this passage causes some very specific questions for our modern context. And I promise we will get to them in the coming weeks. The rest of chapter 6, Paul's going to unpack a lot that has to do with Christian sexual ethics. And why does God care anything about who any of us sleep with? He's going to unpack that. We're going to get there. We're going to go through that. But right now, this morning, we simply need to know that Paul is listing examples of how the, Corinthians elites, how the Corinthian elites live rebelliously. And one of those ways is sexually. I'm going to sleep with who I want to sleep with. God can't tell me differently. Nobody can tell me differently. Second, greed. Paul speaks of, lists different examples of greed, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. We might think, why, why, why does he throw drunkards and revilers in there? The Corinthian elites would often throw drunken feasts. We're going to talk about this a lot when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and see the Corinthians are incorporating that practice into the way they eat together and practice the Lord's Supper. But the elites would often throw these drunken feasts in order to display their social status. It's like somebody that puts out the expensive wine bar to show you how much money they got. And their revelry would often lead to reviling. The, the Greek philosopher Epicharmus, he describes these kinds of feasts like this. He says, but after drinking comes mockery, after mockery, filthy insults, and after insults, a lawsuit. In this passage, we've seen that lawsuits were a means of thievery, swindling, greedily defrauding your enemy. All of this is how the Corinthian citizens 
live. It's how the unrighteous live. But Paul says Christians are different. How? Because we're better than the world than all of this? We've never done any of this? We're not sinners like them. We've achieved a different identity. Paul says, no, we're not different because of something we've achieved, but because of something we've received. Verse 11, and such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you, Shades. Such was I. But because of what Jesus has done, that's what it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of what Jesus has done, and by the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says, because of what Jesus has done, and by the power of the Spirit, here are three things that you have received. First, you were washed, made clean. Scholars argue, is he talking about by the blood of Jesus, or is he making a reference to baptism? I think it's both. Because in just the last chapter, he talked about how Christ is our Passover lamb sacrificed for us. We are washed and made clean by the blood of Jesus. But no Christian could hear that they were washed without thinking about baptism. And baptism pictures the reality of being washed clean. In baptism, we get a picture of receiving a new identity. Old me, dead, buried. Raised to walk in a new way of life. Baptism pictures the reality that we have received a new identity. I belong with all the other saints who passed through these waters. I've been set apart by the blood of Jesus and by baptism. I've been washed, received a new identity as a saint. That's literally the second thing we're told we receive. Second, you were sanctified, made holy, set apart as a saint, as one of God's holy ones. And you may say, but Jonathan, I'm not holy, and you're right. Perfect holiness is something none of us can achieve. It's the third thing we are told we have received. Third, you were justified. Made holy, made right in God's eyes because of Christ. Corinth, shades, this is who you are. Washed sanctified, justified. No, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be who you are. That's the call. Don't, don't live lives as if you were someone who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. That's who you were. That's not who you are. Be who you are. Like, to go back to Simba again. If you've never seen it, Watch it, people, not the live action. Do yourself a favor. Animated version only. That's beside the point. Like Simba, at the end of The Lion King, when he returns to the Pride Lands, defeats his evil uncle, takes his place as king, that's who he was all along. He was always the king. That was his identity. He just needed to hear the call. Remember who you are. 
be who you are. In shades, we need to hear the same thing. The same call from our father through his word to Corinth. It's also his word to you. You are washed, sanctified, justified, a saint. Be who you are. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful that my identity is not something that I have to work for or achieve or drum up within myself that I am not defined by my brokenness, my sin, my broken desires, that my identity, our identity is something that we receive. I am who you say I am. Father, I pray that we would be a people who would latch onto that, believe that, live into that by the power provided in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by your spirit pray for that to be a daily reality, that we at Shades Valley, we would be who we are. Pray this in the name of the one who has made us saints, you by your son, through your spirit. Amen. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men, strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen. <laughs>